welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Back to the Addiction Connection. So the first thing we need to say before we even tell you the title is the other website that you're supposed to go to to look up what happens to people who are using weird drugs, Reddit. Yeah, Reddit. That's the one we forgot on the last uh, thing. So yes, so we, Reddit. We use Reddit. <laughs> we use Reddit occasionally, but uh, kind of forgot the name. There you go. So, so t- anyway, today is kind of our hepatitis C primer or primer, depending on primer. Potato. Potato, potato. Are you British? Primer. Anyway, so we're going to talk about kind of the risks and the data about hepatitis C, especially in the, the, you know, the window of IV drug use. And then what do you do when you have a patient who's newly diagnosed with hepatitis C? And we'll get kind of to the other viruses and all the other stuff, as well as treatment stuff in the future. And I think we probably should start with just kind of the general information about injections and an injection process, because I think a lot of people really don't know a ton about it. And Pretty sure nobody understands it. You know, we have patients who will explain some of these things, but uh, really there's a certain number of things that can really mess things up and can lead to infections. I think a lot of people think, when you think of infections from IV drug use, I think the first thought that most of us had and what I had probably five, six years ago was that sharing needles. That was the only way you can get infection. I mean, yeah. just that's what you think. But there's, again, so many parts to the whole process where infection can actually happen. It's not just the sharing needles. This can happen even if you're not sharing needles and you're using clean needles. Yeah, I mean, it's really about the surface and where you're doing it. And uh, often these are happening in bathrooms. They're happening in different places. Um, you know, are the, are the people washing their hands or washing the equipment that they're using, or is it clean or used? Um, you don't know. I mean, a lot of these things are not. And then the actual cooking of the medications or the drugs... You know, you have a solid substance that you're about to inject. You have to cook it, melt it, get it all within the aqueous Solubilized. solution. That's the better word, solubilized. So what are you doing with that? Is it a clean, again, back to the equipment, or is this a drug that's been cut or mixed with a bunch of other stuff and it's not clean from the beginning? Yeah, and I've had patients tell me, you know, how they do this uh, different ways, and they talk about filtering it, and often they're filtering it through things that are not clean, and sometimes it's... Something as simple as a cotton ball, but I had one patient said that they that they would use the filters from their cigarettes, and they would uh, put it in the solution and then suck it through. But they know they would not throw away uh, the filter. No, um, and the reason you do this, and people, you know, you don't really think about that. Why would you need to even filter this? But you know, when you're solubilizing something, sometimes there's still some solid product or at least some solute in there, and so you want to filter it through that so you only get this liquid compound. Um, because they are thinking about complications in a way. and um, But part of the reason that they keep these things is because when they're sucking things through this filter, some of that you know, drug or substance that they want is kind of left in that filter. Yeah, and I'd say often in different places, people rarely will tell you that they wipe their skin off with alcohol or do that kind of thing. They'll sometimes lick their finger and wipe off the area thinking that uh, that's a clean thing to do. Uh, kind of like that whole thing about licking the needles, which I've had patients tell me that if they're using somebody else's needle, they'll lick it first. Well, and they say sometimes that if you lick the needle, it doesn't burn as much when you start injecting. Yeah, so 
So I think that's one thing. And, you know, obviously rarely are, you know, when I've seen people that have had injection site issues and, and such, they're not putting Band-Aids on them. They're, uh, they're just kind of wounds uh, up their arms. So uh, they're not taking care of it after. They're not taking care of it before. And often, uh, you know, this is what's leading to the infection down the road. Right. And so even if you look at, you know, the whole reusing needles and the needles themselves, you know, you look at a needle and it looks great. And so you might look at it after you've used it once and it still looks great to the naked eye. But when you actually look at them under the microscope, even if you've used it once, the edges are not quite as sharp. They're also a little jagged. And you use it twice, it's already got some little abnormalities. If you use a needle six times, if I could show you this micro microscope thingy, it's a scary needle. I would never let anybody bring towards my arm. But if you looked at it with the naked eye, it would look pretty straight. But just having a not perfectly brand new needle can create other irritation at the injection site. So skin is a little bit more traumatized and can let in other infections, other skin infection, other infections in the area. So, Dr. Bell, yes, what kind of infections <laughs> are you at risk for? That's so, like I'm interviewing you. <laughs> well, Dr. Devine, hmm, let me think about that. Am I taking a test? So, you know, the, the viruses, which are probably not as common as the bacterial infections, but, you know, hepatitis ABC, not in that order, um, and then as well as HIV. Those are the things we think about the most. The fearful ones are obviously hepatitis C and HIV. Yeah. And so you're at risk of those. But then there's a whole gamut of bacterial infections. Dr. Yeah. Devine, do you know what those are? Oh, man. we've seen <laughs> And we've seen some. And we've had people. Pretty much with all of these. With every single one of these. Uh, with sepsis, with osteomyelitis. I had a patient with osteomyelitis in his cervical spine. Bad uh, hips. And, a lot and, of hips. And a hip. Uh, endocarditis. We've had multiple cases of in our uh, population. Uh, and of course the abscesses, which I'd have to say I've seen uh, some frequently, uh, even one just recently. So uh, cellulite is not uncommon, but again, I think the things that we see that are really so, um, it's really causing a lot of problems is when they get the bone infections in the right. heart. In the heart. I think cellulitis is probably the most common. Obviously that's just the skin infection. So a lot of this injection process, as you can imagine, is just that skin is getting infected. Um, it's kind of interesting because often you won't have cellulitis that's bilateral because in, in regular doctoring life because you just typically get an infection on one side of your body. But um, we've noticed with patients that they'll have bilateral cellulitis because they're injecting on both sides. And they're using probably the same needles and the same stuff. And so they have bilateral upper extremity cellulitis, and that's super rare in regular medicine. So let's get back to hepatitis C. <laughs> okay. So 81% roughly of HCV uh, burden actually in the U.S. is uh, really due to the IV drug use. So, again, that's, you know, four-fifths. And that's the U.S. Yeah. Minnesota I, is not, it's a little bit harder to know the exact numbers, and this is, I mean, who counts it, and so data and reporting is a little bit um harder to, to get out of our state in general, but overall, again, in the U.S., it's 81%. Yeah, and some of the data out of MDH back, and this is probably two-year-old data, they felt that there was roughly about 34,000 uh, people reporting. With chronic. With chronic hepatitis C. So it's certainly around, again, remembering that a microscopic droplet of blood on a spoon can carry hep C for three weeks. So it's ironic because not only do you not think that. So yeah. this is somebody who has cooked their drugs on a spoon, drawn up from a needle, injected, and then somebody else is 
drawn up from that same spoon or they reused it, you can get a microscopic droplet. But I've actually had parents ask me, if you're sharing spoons and three weeks of sharing just the spoon, because you wouldn't think the spoon, you always think the needles, but the spoon. Mm, I'm not sure I saw weeks. the irony in that. but No, I just think it's crazy that I've had parents actually ask me about the spoon and I didn't necessarily know that up until about a year ago, that mm. the spoon can carry... Hep C for three weeks. Kind of reminds me of COVID here because they're talking about for every person that gets Hep C, how many do they infect? And it's actually spread to two new people per year. Um, <laughs> like, where are you going? With well, this? you know how they say with COVID, it's like I know, oh. but I was like, what? You know, you always want to say you just want to say COVID on anything. So COVID, um, but I don't. Okay. <laughs> so basically, they're saying that over um, five years, that f- first case can turn into two hundred and forty-three more infections in five years. So. I mean, I think that's pretty impressive. It's that whole doubling, doubling, doubling. So in Minnesota, as of New Year's of 2020, the access to these medications, direct agent, direct, my goodness. Say that again. Direct acting antivirals. So the actual medications that cure this have increased. Now, this, this is from the beginning of the year information. So who knows what's happened, obviously, with COVID because direct access to anything has diminished in COVID unless you're talking about supplemental oxygen you're gonna have to keep going because i don't understand the (laughs) next graph (laughs) so i don't get it um but basically if you're looking at direct access to medications worldwide if you could have the same impact of access worldwide you'd have a significant decreases in total viremic infections as well as incident um hepatitis C overall chronically, hepatocarcinoma, and other uh, latent infections and liver-related diseases would significantly decrease. However, um, this is not necessarily the case because worldwide there is an estimated 70 million people infected with hepatitis C. If you look at the globe and look at the hotspots for hepatitis C, as though it's obviously a huge issue in our country, as we just said, the hotspots are more, you know, Asia and Africa. obviously Africa is huge. So show them the picture. Okay, here you go, guys. So, <laughs> what is the hepatitis let's, C virus? Let's talk a little bit about that little thing. Um, <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's uh, very small. You know, nine point six. KBSSRNA. It's very. It's a nucleic acid. Whatever that means. I don't even know. But there's different genotypes. One through six. Uh, and this is an enveloped virus. I the think genotypes are hugely important when you're talking about treatment, treatment which yes. we'll get to in a later podcast when we learn what those words actually mean. Yeah. So, <laughs> there, yeah, the genotypes are really important. So I think that's probably the key. And it is an em- enveloped uh, and virus, which also has uh, implications. So here's what I find super interesting, and you probably don't. I but don't. if you look at the hepatitis C virus and you're looking at it in a lab, it, it really infects the primary hepatocytes, so the liver cells and T-cell cultures, this whole replicon system. But are you looking at it in actual human beings? It's more in the cytoplasm, the hepatocytes and the lymphocytes as well. And this is mostly in humans and other primates. So it lab versus real people tends to be different, but humans and primates versus other species also is different. Yeah, you were right. I, I just didn't find that interesting <laughs> at all. But... Uh, you know, then there's this whole graph about what are the future burdens of hepatitis C, kind of related to morbidity and mortality in the U.S. And I think that uh, Dr. Bell wants to explain that. <laughs> so this is data that kind of came out of, you know, about 2010 in this uh 
Diagnostic Liver Disease Journal. And so basically they're saying of 2.7 million hepatitis C infected persons in primary care. So this is just the patients you identify when you're actually screening, which is why it's important to screen that 45 to 65 year old age group at least once during a healthcare maintenance exam. That's my tangent. That's super important because it's, so have you been tested? Have I been tested for hepatitis C? You're in that age group. (laughs) I've only been tested because I've been pregnant four times in the last decade, but you're in that age group that should be tested. I think that's kind of personal. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay. Anyway, so if you have 2.7 hep C, uh, 2.7 million hep C in in primary care, 1.47 million will develop cirrhosis. I mean, that's huge. 350,000 of that 2.7 million will develop liver cancer and just under 900,000 will die from some type of hepatitis C related complication. That's huge. That's huge. So how do you look at this versus the other big ones? Hep B, HIV. Yeah, well, you know, HIV has has been a pretty flat curve for a long time. But it's the scary one. It's obviously the scary one, although very treatable now. But the numbers for for uh you know, per 100,000 people is pretty much stuck around that one and kind of stayed flat for a long time. Uh-oh, was that my phone? That was your phone. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the hepatitis C, that has actually now surpassed hep B. And I think that that's the, you know, obviously the long-term consequences of C are, are terrible, which you just talked about. But it, it actually crossed at about 2006 and seven, right in that range, where suddenly hep C became a much bigger issue. And I think, obviously, a lot of the decline in hepatitis B is just the vaccine. You know, we have a vaccine for hep B. Do those work, vaccines? Well, in hepatitis B, gosh darn it, I hope they do. Actually, I know I have a good hepatitis B titer. Again, I've been pregnant a thousand times. Yes. So when you look at the demographics, I'm not going to go through all the details because those are impossible to remember, but if you're looking at ages 20 to 59, so Kurt's like, I almost graduated out of this age bracket. I'm like right in the middle. <laughs> in the middle of 59. Yeah. Um, the, the people who have the most um, risk here, who have the highest chances of having hepatitis C are, are the, the ethnicity of Mexican-Americans who were actually born within the United States who are uh, significantly below the poverty line. You know, to be clear, I had a patient today that thought I was, 40, thought I was 45. That would be insulting to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the impact of, uh, of treatment is really the important thing for hep C. And my goodness, you can make such a difference in people's lives with the treatment. And if you look at patients with liver failure and the survival rates, uh, it's amazing that we can really change people's lives. Wouldn't you agree, Dr. Bell? <laughs> I would agree. I was waiting for you to try to give these numbers, but it's not, I mean. You're the number person. The, this, I'm not going to explain all these numbers because no one really remembers them anyway. But if you look at no treatment versus if you can treat even half of people, the curve gets cut in half. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. But when you're looking at all-cause mortality before, you know, treatment versus not treatment, um, all-cause mortality, obviously, treatment significantly lower. Impact of hepatitis or, excuse me, hepatocellular carcinoma, even more significantly lower. And the biggest one is this whole liver failure. I mean, if you could see the graph, the graph without treatment is literally a 45-degree angle from the, the what are they called, the, the coordinate thingies? Oh, my goodness. The, the zero, zero you, on the XY coordinates versus major? treatment. No, I wasn't. Um, treatment is, like, pretty flat along that X. Yeah. Whatever. So what do we do when this patient walks in? And in our, in our clinic, of course, we do a lot of screening uh, because of uh, – drug use. And 
substance abuse. And so we do a lot of hep C and hep B and hep everything. We do all hep. And uh, <laughs> we're pretty, Obviously not hip. We're pretty hip. Um, but, wah, what, wah. but we... <laughs> we <laughs> I gave you credit there. But we screen everybody and, uh, and we get the patients with hep C, obviously. And we don't actually treat them in our clinic. So we do have to send them someplace where they can uh, get the treatment. But there's cool, a lot of I, education. Can I go on a tandem there for oh, a second? Geez. The cool thing in Minnesota now is that you can do treatment. As a family doctor. As a family doctor without having, because up until like this year, you had to send them to an either an infectious disease doctor or a hepatologist or a liver doctor. And that's hard. I mean, their wait times are so high, but now you can as a family doctor, but it, you know, it's super important. I'm not going to say every family doctor should go out and start doing this like tomorrow. There are different nuances and treatments and all of that. Um, the new push. Who should we thank for that, by the way? Dr. Ryan Kelly. The guy's amazing. He's amazing. And he works at um, the the. Now you can't Cook. remember. Is it Cook? Cook Clinic downtown. Yeah. I got it. Downtown but he was one of the people that really pushed this. And uh, I know we signed signed some things that he had going. But uh, he was a real proponent for this. Uh, and and ma- I think he made a lot difference in a lot of people's lives. Well, and the next step is, is you know, right now they, they really push for you need to be in recovery for six months, but for treatment. And there's pluses and minuses because as we'll get into in a future podcast, starting treatment and then stopping and starting and stopping can have horrible effects on effectiveness of the treatment. Um, but again, this is all harm reduction and but that not, was a huge tangent. Yeah, but yeah, but not starting treatment. Uh, th- that patient can infect more people. Exactly. So I think that was the big push Ryan had is that we should be treating them the minute we find them. Yeah, so, so Ryan, if you're listening, good work. Yeah, you're the man. <laughs> So, yeah, there's a lot of education that goes in on this whole thing when you find it. You know, the kind of natural history, the fact that it's treatable, and because so many people just don't know that. And a lot of those issues with how you don't transmit it to your family members because there's ways to avoid that. Uh, and, and really, I think that, um, you know, these are patients that are, that are going to take this diagnosis. They're going to have issues with mental health and depression if they already don't. So they need a lot of reassurance. reassurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and they may benefit uh, for some of the support groups for hep C patients. Well, I see quite a few. Yeah, and I don't think it's, it's not always who you think it is. And again, this is back to the whole, you should really screen people. It's important to have the discussion with them because if you, they obviously see you did a hepatitis C and it's positive and they have no idea why you did it, that's going to be an awkward conversation. But I had a patient who we found it on and, I mean, she was clearly devastated. She knew I ordered it. But we were able to treat her, test her husband who was negative. But, I mean... Imagine had we not found that, and she's totally fine now because we got it treated. Um, she's so perfect. It's you know, it was from something like remotely that she didn't even realize because at the time that wasn't a big deal. Mm. They didn't know how it was transmitted fully so, back what, in the eighties. Are you done? I am. Okay, Sorry. and so additionally, of course, you know, newly diagnosed patients with Hep C, you got to think about the other things. So they should be vaccinated if they're not for Hep A and B, because these will make Hep C worse if they get these. Thanks for jumping in. I'm um, just trying to you know, know. add to it. And again, weight has its issues with people's liver. So weight loss, if appropriate, is important. Well, because fatty liver on top of it, just like hepatitis A or B on top of it is not going to be good. So we don't want people to have fatty liver disease. So you really want to help console on that. Um, and then you're going to talk about the other things, the big things that really can impact the liver. Like if you're talking about acetaminophen, especially because obviously acetaminophen works 
gets, you know, broken down through the liver. Um, you should really limit acetaminophen to one to two grams per day. Um, if they're super well controlled, super treated, you can maybe flirt with that two and a half or 2,500 to three grams, but really shoot for that more to one to two grams. Um, and then you have to screen for cirrhosis and we'll kind of get to this into the future of how you do that and how often. Yeah. Should I mention that we're doing this in a shed? Right. Sorry. And I'm really <laughs> afraid that I'm really afraid that 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 uh, propane heater is going to kick in up there. I'm homeless now, so I'm living in a camper in a shed. So anyway, bear with us. Yeah. And then again, not only acetaminophen, but NSAIDs. If you're at end stage, if you have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, so you can still use NSAIDs of the ibuprofens, even in the presence of hepatitis C. Um, but obviously, if they're end stage, you should be aware of this. And hopefully, if they're end stage, even as a primary care doctor who can treat this, if they're getting to that end stage cirrhosis, hepatocellular or carcinoma, obviously, I'm going to have friends that are going to be helping me through this. Yeah, lots. So how do we? Especially you. Yeah, like, how you're are... going to need lots of friends. Oh, I need a, I need one friend. Uh, so <laughs> measuring, you know, there's some of these things how to avoid transmission that we should. This probably is touch what on. patients care about. Yeah, I mean, don't randomly use people's toothbrushes. That would be right on the top of the list. <laughs> I haven't found myself doing that, but don't uh, sharing razors. Um, things that can cause bleeding. Yeah, you know, avoid touching people's blood. That would be good. <laughs> don't. Yeah, I love I'm, this. Stop injecting drugs. Okay, no, this isn't a treatment. You don't tell a patient don't inject drugs. Yeah, you it, actually want to get them treatment for their substance use disorder. Correct. You know, MAT if they have opioid or whatever. But don't just tell them don't use drugs. That's yeah. not going to work. We have a lot of discussions with patients about sharing needles, and you know, even if patients relapse, it's just boy, we really, um, really have the talk with them about trying not to do that. It, it, obviously, they're sometimes in positions where there's not a choice, but uh, that's obviously. And I've had a number of patients that that have uh, that have contracted Hep C after a relapse. And then you should not donate any type of bodily fluids, but they can breastfeed as long as they don't have cracked or bleeding nipples. Just say no. Correct. Okay, so sexual transmission it's low if you're in a monogamous heterosexual relationship they say they don't recommend barrier protection for couples who are in this long-term relationship now if you obviously have multiple sexual partners partners with hiv then you use some type of a barrier protection so like condoms i had a guy who was hep c and uh his wife did not contract it for 30 years my patient that i just said so, her husband didn't either so yeah, so really amazing so hep c and alcohol no that would be the easy, that's the easy thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, hepatitis C infection rates in alcoholics are obviously, you know, significantly higher than controls. And I think sometimes it's the uh, the behaviors that follow heavy drinking. But, um, you know, that alcohol use in patients with hep C uh, obviously increases the fibrosis progression rate. And that's really what we have to counsel people on. Right, um, and it I, can cause the synergistic damage. Yeah, and so really overall mor mortality is much worse. So if so. you find yourself diagnosing a patient um, with chronic hepatitis C, I mean, you're going to look at all the other blood work, the CBC, PTINR, because this is going to all add into this, you know, MELD score, which is that whole, are they entering liver failure thing? You need those labs. You want to look at LFTs, liver functions, of course, ferritin, iron, uh, urine. You want to get the genotype, like we had mentioned at the beginning, what type of hep C is this? subtype if it's possible. So you might get an A1 or an, or a, excuse me, a 1A or a 1C or a 2B. So there's different types. Um, how much hepatitis C is there, the RNA, the quantitative, um, because that can definitely make a difference to let you know if this is more of a chronic picture versus A quantitative. and acute. Isn't it quantitative? I thought that's what I said. Uh, I think you said quantitative. 
But anyway, go ahead. Okay. You had an English minor. I was just trying to step on you. Quantitative. Um, so you want to know how much RNA is there because is this chronic or acute? Yeah. So Any I other think, things you might want? Well, like no, hepatitis A or B or yeah, HIV. Obviously, those all get tested when in our in our group um, when we see them. But you know, some other diagnostic studies, kind of in selected patients. Really, you know, have I ever seen Wilson's disease? I have never seen a case. I've seen one in residency. Never saw one. So this the serum seroplasm, plasmin, uh, but you know, and then they talk about checking ANA and smooth muscle antibodies. I don't mean uh, I've never, I've never done that. But then the ser- sero, cryoglobulins. <laughs> so you know, and this is just because if they have another another underlying liver issue, this could definitely impact you know, prognosis. And so it's not that this is what would cause their hepatitis C, but combined, it can definitely worsen. So definitely things to look at. And so with that, we're going to end this kind of hep C primer. We will come back and kind of delve into more of the treatments and all of that, as well as the other infections that can happen with different substance use disorders. Yeah, I think we're also still got to get back to our mental health series we've done. We do. We did anxiety and now we're going to pop out another one like on panic panic all uh, those things although i am working on a talk on uh, testosterone and opioid use aren't we going to do that as a podcast maybe not at some point all right but we'll let battle legs take over and thanks for listening and we'll see you next week we will be back sun is rising high burning into the day i will say goodbye I'll be going away Brush away my doubts What tomorrow will hold Feeling fine for now Going down the road To a city to sing About the trees and the wind About the hills in the spring And the rivers that bend The rocky deep pass And the poppies and ponies They paid for the stories they're told of a clear new day, only down the road. So heavy rain at my back, lazy meadows ahead. In my book, I keep track of the promise to set for my songs in a town. For tomorrow, we'll hold, feeling fine for now.
morning into the day I will say goodbye I'll be going away I brush away my doubts What tomorrow will hold Feeling fine for now Going down the road Feeling fine for now